0: He's got a narrow open stance, gets the face wide open, probably fights a little bit being underneath. So the more open he is, the more on plane he delivers the club, which is a foundational piece, one of the five foundational pieces I teach art. Right. So for him, the more open he gets, the better he plays.
1: This is The Tournament Code. We appreciate you taking the time to join us today, James. We know a little bit about your teaching, but we start with every guest in
0: the same spot, which is, tell us how you got into the game of golf. I got into the game of golf because I I come from a golf family. My mom was a very nice player, like scratch, I would say. And uh, I have two brothers, the oldest one, Tom. Played 22 years as a pro, seven years in Europe, 11 years on the PGA Tour, and he's 10 years older. So, you know, obviously, I'm seven. He's 17, winning the State Am and things like that. So it just kind of became part of what the family did. You know, after a really nice junior career, I went and played golf at the University of Nebraska. Had a pretty good amateur career and college career there and turned pro. Played for five years in Japan and Asia, South America, really all over And then, you know, it just evolved into after playing, doing something that I loved and something I felt like I was knowledgeable about, which is to coach. Very cool. So you watched your brother win some tournaments
1: and you also caddied for him some. Tell him what you learned being out there with
0: him, with these high-level players. Yeah. You know, one thing I learned was that you don't have to be perfect to play good, but you don't miss many short game shots and you don't make stupid mistakes. So one of the things I always felt like my swing was better than my brothers. And a lot of times we play together and they'd either be going like, let's see, you're playing in Asia. He's playing on the tour. But like he, he never hit it over green to a back pin. And so I do stuff like that all the time. There are uh, good misses and there are bad misses, acceptable misses. And you got to just learn to, even when you're playing bad, to still be able to shoot a score. And that's something I never really did quite master that he was quite good at. So, and then, you know, I learned basically when you, you know, I caddied in the masters, I caddied, you know, so I caddied tour events. And I just learned how, what it's like to be a pro. I mean, you know, you got to treat it like a job and act like a pro. And, you know, so that, that I had a huge step up. And not only could I, and it kind of, ultimately how I started my teaching career, I had my, one of my brother's best friends was Sonny Balestero. So a lot of times they'd go practice together and i just like hang out. I'm watching practice or I'd caddy while they played the a practice round. So I had access to you know, opportunities that most people didn't have that way, and then I mean, you I, to, know, to to my credit, I did something. Else. You know, I didn't I didn't just sit on the sideline. So,
2: would you say that hanging or spending time around sevy was one of the reasons that you became a short game coach?
0: Yeah, perhaps. I mean, the reality is that, that it just kind of turned into a thing. The real reason was that I was pretty good short game wise, but I had no idea why or how. And then when I went over to Asia and I experienced like completely different type of grass than I'd ever experienced, you know, it was like leafy, real moist, it spread out and it was sit down and I was just like, gosh, how the heck can you do this? And so at some point it was more like my curiosity of like, why could I chip good in the Midwest and not chip so good here? And then after I quit planning, I got a job, I started working for Dave Pels and so he was one of my brother's coaches. And then that kind of started the ball rolling. And then, of course, then I had access to people like City Ballesteros or Raymond Floyd, people like that. And at some point, I just said, you know, I don't really know what I'm going to teach because I did nothing but play and work on my game since I was 10. So here I am, 29 years old. And I'm like, I've got to go teach these people how to chip. And I really don't know. I can do it, but I really don't know how to teach it. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to, Study. I'm right. So I went to the players' championship. I caddied. I got video of Raymond Floyd, Corey and Jody Mudd, my brother who was amazing around the greens and Sevy, mostly Sevy. And I said, okay, I'm just gonna drop these videos in. There's a TV and a VHS tape, and I'm just gonna see if I can find commonalities. And whatever these players do, that's what I'm gonna teach. And so kind of surprisingly, the things that you are heard at that time, like lean left, keep your head still, keep your hands ahead, you know, do all those things was. Not what they did, not even close. They didn't do any of those things. And so I just kind of came up with my own thing, so to speak. And after 30 years, I would say that thing has been adopted by a lot of people, a lot of coaches, and become very common. Where when I first started to explain what it was, people are like, they were not happy. So, what were some of those things that all of those players did? Like, number one, they extend their chest. So, I don't know if it's, I'm on camera, right? So, so you can see me. So, like, if I, Made a back swing, the lead shoulder would go down. Let's say a 10-yard shot. The, the lead shoulder would go down, so the head would actually move forward. And then as they deliver and the mass is, uh, mass is turning and rotating on the left side, it would move, not like forward, but it also move up. And the nerves move up because they would slightly extend, the, extend their, lift their chest so there's like freedom in the delivery. Well, that's not keeping your head still. That's not you know that there's the weight is flowing and changing as the mass shifts position they're lifting up and releasing the club i noticed that whatever shaft angle they set the club on you know it didn't matter if it was a low shot high shot or whatever that at impact the club basically returned to the same an angle at the ball that they set it on and you know that's not keep your hands in it. that's that's those those people a lot of times can't keep get the ball on the green and uh unfortunately that's really what was being taught at the time. If you look, even from the top teachers, you know they they, they would go, "This is how you chip," and it's like, "Well, that's not how Sevy chips. That's not how Raymond Floyd chips, or Corey Pavin does. Almost exactly the opposite." And then you also heard that, "Oh, it's the it chip's just a mini full swing." You well, know, that just couldn't be further from the truth. That's almost polar oh, opposite. You know, you have a face to path relationship. Which I don't know how y'all feel, but like if I'm going to compress a five iron and hit it 210 yards in the air, the face better be close to the path so I can get moving and rotate and compress the ball. And if the face is close to the path around the green, you're going to be horrendous. So you need the face a little open to the. You know the delivery, so the sequence is different. Maybe the grip is different. The setup's completely different. It's not a mini full swing. That was also being taught, and that that's that's the type of stuff that people just didn't understand or like trying to make it easy for a bad player to chip. They go, oh, just make a mini full swing. Well, they're not going to be any good that way, and they're doing them a disservice. So that's the kind of type of stuff I fought, like releasing the club, the, how the the movement. You know, the setup is different. Everything. I, I'm basically, like I said, I was like, I don't agree with one thing that's being taught. I'm going to create this new thing. I didn't try to create it. I just described what I saw, basically, and said, since Seve does it this way, this way, I'm going to teach it. You know, it's not just Seve, but Raymond and all the others, too. So,
1: How did your philosophy get refined over the years? Because I imagine you had those videos of those good players you mentioned, Jody Mudd, good Kentucky boy, and we've talked with Jesse Mudd, his nephew, and you look at all those players and you see these commonalities from them, but I'm sure like as time went on, you notice more and more technologies evolved maybe a little bit in that front. Yeah.
0: No, I would say that's fair. I would say the five foundational things I came up with has not changed in 30 years. That was 30 years ago. Literally, it's the exact same thing. Now, the understanding is much deeper. I didn't understand that the face needed to be open to the path, but I knew that the face was rotated open relative to how they took it back with the full swing. They took it back. Mostly maybe the arms internally rotate, the face is turned down, and then all of a sudden they're in a little pitch and it's this way. So I, I noticed the differences, but I didn't I didn't understand how all the pieces fit together. I didn't understand why. I just said, well, they do it this way, so therefore that's what I'm going to teach. But now I understand why, you know. And so it's certainly the understanding has become much deeper. You know, as a coach, I've developed the ability to explain to somebody that's not a That hasn't been doing it their whole life. There's doing things somewhat intrinsically, subconsciously, like I can just tell what to do. Like, oh, hey, this is into the grain, feet up in the rough, the grass is wet and dead. So therefore we have to, you know, I had none of that knowledge that I could pass on. I could just do it. So that's just, you know, 30 years of coaching. It, It takes X amount of reps to develop that skill set just like it would take x amount of reps to develop a skill set as a player so it's no real different as a coach so
1: you said there are five real fundamentals that haven't changed over the years and earlier you also mentioned that you noticed when you're in asia the grass type was different than the midwest and your short game ability was affected by it what changes do you notice or recommend or do you recommend it at all when changing from grass types when changing from lies like into the grain uh Way from, et cetera. So,
0: the good news is you don't really have to so much change your technique, even though there are adaptations that you may adaptations that you make. It more like in shot selection. So, for example, I could, I, if I'm working with one of my tour clients, I'd have Kirk Kijowna out there, and I'm saying, okay, with this club, we're going to be able to hit four trajectory windows. We've got lower than normal, normal, higher than normal. We're going to go straight up. Well, if I was an Asian, I had that lie, and it's a little wet and into the grain, and I mean, you hit a quarter of an inch behind it, and you just chillied it, but I would go higher than normal with less loft, so that actually add effective bounce and loft as where I could be worried about hitting the ball first and then put the ball back in my stance with a more lofted tub like a lob but exactly the wrong adaptation <laughs> for that lie, and therefore I'm playing the wrong shot. Now... You know, growing up in the Midwest where the lies were quite simple and easy, I never had to figure out how to add effective bouts or uh, move the low one more forward or things like that. So once you have your base mechanics, then there's certainly adaptations based on the type of grass, the lie, the direction of the grain, is it wet, is it dry? You know, so there's a million things to learn as far as the skill of... So there's technique that creates, functional technique creates you know repeatability optimal context launch spin all the, all those things but even within that then i still have that's that's technique that's not skill i have to take that skill pick the right club choose a landing spot i got to adapt for the uphill you know into the grain lie i got to adapt for the down slope that's nestled deep in the rough and so you don't keep the same setups and the same delivery for those like on an upslope, I might actually have a little draw mentality. I might actually open up a little bit more than normal so I could feel a little into out so that I shall the delivery. So so that's you know technique and skill are not the same thing. And then as a coach, you have to be able to say, okay, here's your baseline. And I think it's really super important to have one. Otherwise if you get off and you don't have that defined, how do you how do you get back on? How do you find it? You know, and the, the two response is to try a bunch of random stuff. Hoping it gets better. And that's that's a recipe for disaster. I call that being on the hamster wheel of things that never work, you know, trying everything. That guy shows up to my office with three putters in my his bag, and he's tried every grip. He's got, you know, there's no no plan whatsoever. So, but you teach the the physics first of the basic, like home base, and then you say, okay, this is home base. This is what we're gonna do to fight it every time we practice. Now, to be a shot maker, to be creative. We have to recognize the situations where we need to steepen the delivery or shallow the delivery or hit it higher or what the right shot might be, that sort of thing. We talk about physics. Tell
1: us a little bit more about how your teaching has changed with the introduction of TrackMan with the other data that you get as far as the short game goes. Because many people are familiar with launch monitors, et cetera, in the full swing context, but... In the short game context, they might not be.
0: Well, you could, the good news is you can always measure before and after a change. So let's say you have somebody that's hitting what I call a distance wedge. They don't launch the ball too high, doesn't spin enough. You know, these shots balloon and get affected by the environment. And you could say, hey, listen, we need to launch that lob wedge under 30 degrees. And if we get more forward shaft lean, and this is how we'll do it, XYZ, the launch will come down and the spin will go up. You might have a machine right there giving you feedback on every single swing. And when the golf ball likes it, then the, usually the the player likes it, you know, so to speak. And so, you can quantify changes so much easier. And then, like I said, you might have that piece, which is the physics piece, but you also have to develop the skill. So, I was with a young man right before the show. He's going to go play at SMU next year as a, a freshman. So, we had 79-yard shot into about a 20-mile-an-hour win. It was popping pretty good. And I... I'm like, and we're, we liked this 54 degree, which he launched really low, like about 24 degrees. And at 79 yards into a 20 mile an hour wind, it played 79 yards. I mean, I had my quad sitting right there and I had a cone 79 yards away. And it said 79 of the quad, it landed by the cone. Well, you take out your lob wedge, which is going to launch higher with more spin. In order to get the ball to land by the cone, which is 79 yards away, he hit it at an 89 yard shot. So there's 10 yards of hurt on a lob wedge and zero hurt on a 54. Well, the only way to really quantify that is with technology. Like 12 years ago, you'd be coaching like, hey, you know, if you hit it higher, it's going to hurt. You're just going to, the environment's going to affect your ball more. How much more? Well, I don't know, maybe 10, 15 yards. You know, that's how we did it. And so now you just say, hey, that's nine yards of hurt. If you draw it, it's seven yards of hurt. If you hit a fade, it's 12 yards. You know, you can literally quantify everything. Which it makes it easier to be skillful, right? Which is one reason why I think the play is getting better and better. It makes it easier to, I think, to get insight into what's actually happening at the ball and
1: removing some of the myths around that and the bias, the bias and emotion to it. Yeah, you're exactly right. Absolutely. And one of the things that, you know, there's sometimes been myths about, and I'd like for you to tell us a little bit more about is uh, spin. People, gen- amateurs generally want, more spin or to spin the ball better tell us a little bit about how spin is created and
0: what you work on as far as spin wise with your players and the the pros want to try to take spin off because they spin it too much and the reality is it's about speed it's about loft it's about shaft lean and it's about the the angle of attack so most so so well, let's just say you got a 70 yard flight or wedge okay so tour average because of the dynamics of the swing, they're shifting and rotating and turning. They they got forward shafting. Sure, average is fifteen degrees of forward shafting. So that's a lot of shafting. So if you think, does an amateur typically have that much? Not even close. They're not that. They're not moving their body and using the ground properly to create that. And shafting creates spin. You hit it lower on the face, which helps, right? It launches the ball lower, helps create spin. So if I have loft and speed, and then of course. Doesn't hurt that some of these guys can hit their lob wedge like 112 yards, you know. So a 70-yard shot is a lob wedge. It's short swing. They're using their body to create this movement, sort of the shafts leaning forward at impact, hitting it low on the face. They're delivering it at five degrees, so very shallow. And their their spin rate on a 70-yard shot might be 11,000. You get an amateur that takes it back too big. They don't shift or rotate. They get Three degrees of forward shaft at impact, they might be spinning at four thousand. So it's just it, it's just physics. As a coach, you're just trying to educate them on what might add spin and what they can do, and then you're trying to create some drills or some protocols so they can learn it. And then once they learn it, you got to try and create some drills and protocols so that they keep it f- forever instead of just like I learn it and then I forget it. So when I was growing up, you know, a
2: lot of common golf knowledge or instruction was kind of to have a short, you know, narrow stance. And a lot of times I would end up having an open stance. And nowadays, a lot of coaches are teaching to have, you know, a wider stance, closed stance, and ball position at the, you know, just off the left heel, if you're a right-handed what golfer. What shot are you talking about? Exactly. Just a standard chip shot. Oh, chip shot. Okay. so Standard we're like- chip shot.
0: 10 yards, flat line, stop Correct. shot.
2: Right? Correct. Correct. And, you know, I kind of observed that, a lot of the current instruction teaches to have a wider, wider stance, close stance. Is that something that you agree with, or do you do you ever teach your players to have an open stance on chip shots?
0: Almost all the time. I'll, now let's let's just be truthful and back up a little bit. The golf ball doesn't know how you're standing, and it doesn't care. It cares about the physics of the delivery. Is the face open to the path? Is the angle of attack five or six degrees? Is, is the low point in front? how much shaft lean is there, right? Because that affects how much effective bounce and walks on the club. What's the speed or rhythm of the delivery, right? So if you get the physics of the delivery right, does it matter if your stance is closed or open? Not even one little bit. Sometimes, however, how you stand affects how you d- deliver the club. And it would be a mistake to assume that every player is going to needs to do the same thing in order to get the delivery so for example it's a lot of times it's based on where you're coming from Cooper so for example I have taught Tom Pernice for 28 years I'm going to say he's the best wedge player on the planet and I'll put him up against anybody he's got a narrow open stance gets the face wide open probably fights a little bit being underneath so the more open he is the more on plane he delivers the club which is a foundational piece, one of the five foundational pieces I teach art. So for him, the more open he gets, the better he plays. So I also teach a kid that was just here uh, about three weeks ago that goes to go play at Stanford next year. He's outside and steep. If I opened his stance, what would that do to the delivery? It's going to be worse, right? So the reality is I closed his stance to get the physics better it's just going to be easier for him to deliver properly with a slightly closed stance so that there's not the foundational principles are based on performance not on like hey you're supposed to do this with your feet and i'm like well the golf doesn't know and it doesn't care so i don't care either does that make sense
2: yeah yeah that makes sense i think i think most of the reason that i feel comfortable with the closed stance is you know i'm trying to hit little low draws with that standard chip shot, and it just kind of gets me in that position. That I don't even have to think about.
0: Listen, you're coaching somebody. You're taking my job, and the guy's under and shut, and he hits six inches behind the ball, and he chilly dips and he skulls. You're gonna teach him a close stance, because if you do, you're gonna make him way worse. He's, He's gonna keep going further worse, in that direction, more inside more close. So you also, as a coach, you're always you got a picture in your mind of. What the, what the movement of the club needs to be to get the ball to do what it needs to do. You're trying to take this one student who's a unique individual, not only from a, a biomechanics standpoint, you know, he might have a tight shoulder and a uh, locked left ankle or whatever, but he also might have emotional scar tissue as well should a lot of times. So, you deal with all these factors and you're thinking. What's the easiest, simplest way for this guy to understand what's going to allow him to be repeat, be consistent, so that he can develop a skill set to be world class? And if you don't have a wiggle room as far as style goes as a coach, you're going to make half your students worse. You'll help some, but only the right ones, and the rest of them are going to walk away going, "Oh, that guy didn't know anything. I'm worse." So you can't be locked into a A box, like you can't just say, I'm going to color inside the lines. Now, I have five things that have never changed, but I know that's more about the delivery of the club. But I like a narrow open stance, but that's a preference as a coach. And like I said, I'm not doing that for every single player. Typically, narrower is better because you're trying to eliminate the firing of the hips at the start of the downswing. That would be a power uh, sequence. And we want something where the club actually starts before the hips. So if you're standing on one foot and you had the other one up in the air like a like a like a flamingo, could you fire your hips? It'd be really hard. So that's why a narrower stance typically is better. But what if you had a lady that really casts the club and had no lateral shift in her golf swing, and that's her motor pattern that was running? Then maybe a wider stance would be much better for her. You, uh, hopefully, you're starting to get my. That definitely
2: makes sense. I was. I think. I think most of the reason that it's comfortable for me is because i struggle a lot with um, having chip shots slide up the face and if i just if i just like try to stay on top of it and hit those draws it that never happens but what would you say what would you say you know causes that slide
0: up the face for most golfers there's i'm not i'm not bowing out of this uh question because it's a good question i'm just saying there's 15 possible causes and so for me as a coach to just guess at it, you know, the The reality is, could name five of them. It literally could be you're rotating your hips too early, and so the handle is leading and the face is open. So as the handle gets high, you know, and you're hanging on, that could be sliding under. So that's where maybe like a little draw feel helps you, right? It could be ball positions too far forward and your chest stalls. I mean, there's a million possibilities. So it's like this is, uh, if I had a and I've coached Probably over 100 tour players. And usually most of them make horrendous coaches because they basically go this. They go, I'm great. This is what I feel. So therefore, you should feel the same thing. You should do it like I do it. I'm like it doesn't work that way. It's just not even close to how it works in the real world. So you got to be super careful about just taking your biases and what works for you and putting them on somebody else.
2: Was that hard for you to adapt? Um, was, uh,
0: when you became a coach, probably for ten years, I probably taught full time every day for ten years. I kind of had a little bit more of a cookie cutter approach before I realized, like you know what, I just did that player a huge disservice by trying to get him to stand like he's standing. You know, like Tom Pernice because Tom Pernice is great. It's like no, you know what, go ahead, close your stance. It's fine. So yeah, that that was that's a good question. I I uh but I, I wish I had a do over. Uh, probably the first ten years I was teaching the right stuff but i was not a great coach and i feel like now my coaching ability has caught up or maybe surpassed my technical knowledge and before it was like more i kind of understand the technique but maybe i didn't do such a great job as a coach and if you look at butch Harmon, who's i'm going to say it's the best coach on the in the united states does he have more technical knowledge than maybe like somebody like chris come absolutely not not even, close, but he's a better coach, and I don't think Chris, who's a friend, would mind me saying that. But just has a, a way of making it simple, which is a huge skill, and making you believe it's going to work, which is a huge skill, and then patting you on the, you know, Johnny, a funny story, and making you realize that golf's not that hard unless you unless you're over trying and over caring, you know. So there's as a as someone whose normal client is trying to pay their mortgage with how they play that that requires completely different skill set than, you know, getting some beginner lady not to top it or do not to shank it, you know, which is all just about technique and, you know, what I can do going forward to make sure this doesn't happen again type of thing. But that's not what high performance is. High performance is emotional. It's simplicity. It's being able to play without distraction. It's these other other things. When you work with a player, as you said to us very well here, you can't put them
1: in a mold. You got to work with where they're at. When a player comes to you with something that's more than tactical, when they have a decent bit of scar tissue from short from the short game, from putting, what are some of the things that you do to maybe help
0: mitigate the problems from that scar tissue? Right. So so that's a big topic. The first thing you do is you always start with the physics. because The physics are the root p- cause problems. So essentially they care and they've hit too many bad shots in their life. And then all of a sudden now they have anxiety. And I've written uh, three books, one on wedge play, one on putting, and one on performing well under stress. And And essentially, the third book came about from this very question, like, okay, now that I can deliver the club so the ball goes up in the air and there's some forgiveness and there's some spin that I repeat, but I still get in the tournament and the member guests and I just can't breathe and I perform horribly, you know, get me out there on the course by myself, I'm kind am great. So in this book, I wrote it with another gentleman, uh, R.K. Stutman, Dr. Stutman, and um, we just talked about like, okay, here are 10 things that possibly could help you if you're under stress or duress perform better. And it's it's called Cool Under Pressure. Uh, You can get it at Amazon, but I'll give you one example of the 10. Let's say you're walking to the first tee and your heart rate's at 1%. 40, and you feel like these huge butterflies, and it's a big event for you. It's something you've been looking forward to for a month. And let's say there's 80 people around the first tee as they call your name, and your hearts, you know, your arms feel funny. You know, you haven't hit one practice ball with this new body, right? I taught this to IK Kim, who who uh, used it really to win the Open Championship for women, the Rico or the It's like, look at the treetops, cycle through four seconds. Diaphragmatic breaths. I would have to explain all the keys to that. And think about how blessed you are to be able to go hit this shot. You've been dreaming about being able to, you know, play in this big environment your whole life, and you're finally here. What a blessing, right? And think about how lucky you are in your life. Now, what happens as you breathe and you you maybe have that sense of gratitude is your whole body chemistry changes, the adrenaline and the cortisol that go in your system. Get flushed. You can learn to do that in as little as four seconds. Your heart rate might come down a little bit. You know some of the things that happen. There's 1200 things that happen to your body under stress. Your pupils dilate. The heart rate goes up. The blood vessels constrict. All these things, right? So you got to find a way to kind of mitigate that. So that would be one tip. Another might be reframing. So you could say instead of like, "Oh God, I'm so nervous," you could say, "I'm so excited. I can't wait." hit this t shot. Well, just a simple act of reframing, the data shows that doing that improves performance by like 18%, some crazy amount. And so I simply just say, hey, this is not one tip for every single person, but there are things we can do as players to perform well when it counts. Because the reality is there are plenty of people that perform well when it doesn't count. And the ones that are making money are the ones that are winning, holding trophies in the amateur events or whatever are the ones that play good when they are sleeping on a lead, or when there are a thousand people watching, or when they're, you know what I'm saying? So you got to learn to deal with that effectively. And I would say that the reason why I wrote the book is on the board of a place called the Titus Performance Institute. And I I go down there often, and I privy to all their studies and data. And I realized at some point, maybe eight or 10 years ago that if you learn a new motor pattern, so so Daniel, let's say you're chipping, you take it inside and shut and you chuck it. And you're to me and I teach you to get the toe up in the air and release and get the low point in front. But you got this new motor pattern and you got the old one. The bad news is the old one's in there forever. There's nothing you can do about it. It's, it's the neural pathways that create that. So the goal is to make the new one stronger, right? So it's more dominant. So it's one way we, we have sort of warm up exercises we do every day to make sure that the the brain knows that this the new pattern. Well, there are two times when you revert back to an old pattern. And the first is inactivity. So you take three weeks off. And if you've done 10,000 reps the bad way, pretty good chance you're going to start off doing the bad, right? That's a problem for the amateur player that the pros don't have. The second is stress. You're going to revert back to an old pattern under stress. So as a coach who's in charge of your performance, basically, if I can teach you to deal effectively with stress... It doesn't really even matter what I teach you because you're just going to go back to the other thing, right? So after getting that information and on, on how the brain works under stress response, I thought I better arm my students with things they can do under stress, or I'm basically not doing my job. So I found the smartest guy I knew in performance, which is this guy in Philadelphia at Randall, and I and we I partnered up with him, and I, we wrote this book. So that's unique, and I think that insight you have regarding how
1: players, you know, need to find ways to manage it or else you really haven't, as a coach, you really haven't done anything for them if they can't uh, repeat that pattern in stressful situations. Because if you're, yeah, if you're a high, if you're a high-performing player, you got to be in stressful situations. And one of the things we've learned from a lot of our guests who have worked with tour players is that not only do tour players learn things from them, but they learn things from tour players and you've mentioned some of them regarding the videos you took and just the basics of your short game instruction. What are some other things you've picked up on working with some of these high-performing players?
0: Oh my gosh, yeah! No, I've learned so much more from them than I, they, I've taught them. Right, and it's whether it's how to pull themselves back in the moment when things starts spinning the wrong way, or you know the, the mindset of what, what to do, like I said, so being resilient, or how to prepare around for a round, that I, stuff, I, you know, I was a good player, I won tournaments, but I didn't do it, I didn't really, know. my brother played on tour, yet he didn't, you know, I didn't know this stuff, so, like, for example, now I have this young player that was in today from S is going to SMU, it's like, okay, we're going to go in the practice round, you only get one practice round, yes, all right, so we're going to go mark the tournament pins, you got your compass, you're going to write true north in your book, then that night, you're going to find the wind direction on every hole, you're going to mark the wind direction, and you're going to mark which pins you can't go at. You know, so where the misses are with this win, you know, if it's a 15-mile-an-hour win, there are certain pins that you can't, with a good short game, you can't, if you miss it there, you can't get the ball up and in. So just like how to prepare a book, how to prepare for a tournament, how to prepare for a round, off tournament site when you're training, how to train to develop skill. I mean, all these things that I, yes, I wish I, you know, when I was playing, I wish I knew now that I, or then that I knew now, you know, because it would it would help. The good news is, I'm a better coach than I was a player, and now I have the unique opportunity to still somewhat be involved, even though I'm not hitting a shot to to be a part of people that win or do great things, and so that's pretty cool, you know. In a kind of I don't say it didn't matter, but in a in a kind of a behind the scenes type of a way.
2: So you mentioned charting the wind and figuring out where the pins are for all the practice rounds. And something that I've done in the past, or kind of realized along the way, is that if you're super short-sighted, but you're into the wind, it can be a lot easier chip shot than you may think it chip is. And you
0: got a short shot, you might be trying to make it.
2: <laughs> so do you do you advise your players to maybe you know say the miss on a tucked pin is super short-sighted, but that chip shot's going to be straight into the wind? Do you? Uh, you know, so tend to so be more aggressive into it, that one or
0: find the what I call quality position. So, where's the quality position relative to this pin? You know, it could be a slopey, it might be below the hole, like a Pebble Beach. All right. Or it could be a back left pin that normally you can't get at, but with the wind direction, you're chipping right back into the wind and it's a 20 mile an hour wind. Well, the wind will stop the ball. So, in the rough, let's say, for example, you can't spin the ball very much. So, you have to stop the ball with trajectory. Well, if I could pop the ball up in the air with trajectory and it's into a 20 mile an hour wind, the, the, the ball's coming, you know, a ball that's coming straight down doesn't require any spin to stop. It just goes nowhere. So all of a sudden that becomes an attackable pin where typically it might not be. And that's the type of stuff that like a really good caddy makes a huge difference or preparing like a pro, even if you're an amateur, you know, you're preparing like Bernard Langer prepares would save you an enormous amount of shots but you don't understand how much preparation this caddy Terry does in every round to give him the information he needs and the experience he has of understanding where he can miss and where he can't what pins to take on what pins he can't and it changes daily based on the environment did it rain is it where's the what's the wind direction what's the speed of the greens you know but those guys are amazing at it and it's just something that Amateur players are not amazing at. I, I see all the time. They just really don't talk it through or think it through to the point, and they end up hitting good shots and make doubles because they just hit a. I had a pretty good shot, but I was just screwed over there behind the bunker, and like you can't hit a pretty good shot and make a double. That's that's a, a planning mistake, and so um, you know that's that's part of what you do when you're working. Now the good news is I don't really have to do that job. That's the caddy's job, right? For Stewart Sink or somebody that I'm coaching on tour, but for A young kid who's going to Stanford or SMU, like I was saying, now all of a sudden, they don't have a caddy. And I need to teach them to act and prepare like a pro would. And so that's where I'm going to take that knowledge I've learned and and pass it on. So
2: a lot, something that people talk about a lot these days is core strategy, Um, strategy off the tee, strategy into the greens. But a lot of people don't talk about short game strategy. And that's kind of when I noticed my short game improvement a lot was when You know, say I, you know, do hit the shot where I have to chip over a bunker to a tucked pin. I just kind of accepted, you know, I'm going to make bogey here. I hit it out to 20 feet and my short game stats got a lot better because I had a lot less two chips. I didn't get better at actually hitting the shots. I just got better at choosing what shot to hit and just taking my bogey.
0: How did your ego affect your decision making? And the reality is I have a saying for that because... It's important that, the, uh, that, that you, you, whether it's you're doing it yourself or your caddy's doing it, it's like, okay, it's, hey, you're over here at position F, trust your putter. So all of a sudden, a good shot's 15 feet, or at least you got a 15 footer, to trust your putter, as opposed to like trying to one hop it through the rough or get, and then all of a sudden you, you know, you, you bury it in the lip of the bunker and you just made a triple or, or whatever. Yeah, there's there's acceptable mistakes in golf. A pull cut is perfectly fine. Yeah, I went 15 yards shorter off the tee than a Typically goes, but I'm fine. You know, hitting it two steps on the green and having it roll 15 feet by is fine. Hitting it two steps short of what you're intending, where it plugs in the lip of the bunker, is a two shot penalty. Not, not except so you should be able to go the whole year and not do that. And so the planning part of short game and part of that's just getting rid of the ego and being willing to play away from a pin or not take too much on. Yeah. It's a, there's some a maturity level that, that's required there for sure. Talk a
1: lot about short game and wedge shots, and we don't want to box you in at all because not only do you teach short game, and I believe you do some full swing as well, but also you've done a lot on putting. You've written a book on putting. So we've talked about some of the five fundamentals of short game. Tell us a little bit about what you found
0: in putting and what you talk to your players about. The way I teach putting would be that there are four essential skills, and the most important of which is to think you're good. So we're always going to Work on that. You know, if you're over the ball thinking the ball's going in, there's a pretty good chance that it'll probably go there. And if you're thinking the other way, it's it's not, doesn't really matter what the physics are. So, beyond that, though, you got to start the ball in line. You got to be able to see and predict or feel your line into the hole. And this distance control has got to be there. So, I typically break those down into the individual skills and work on them. So, let's say, for example, you're just not cleaning up well around the hole, you're missing from six feet and in, where usually if the stroke's pretty good, the judgment is a lot less important on a five-footer than it is on a 12-footer. So starting the ball online is about 85% of the direction the ball goes controlled by the face at impact. So if I can aim it well or return the face to square, the ball's essentially going to go where I'm, where I'm pointing, right? So as I look at that, there's movement, there are preferences that I have, whether it's, I know that the putters should be uh, 90 degrees at impact. So I like to set it at 90 degrees and return it to 90 degrees. And I'm a big fan of rhythm. I'm a big fan of of having somewhat of a neutral path, even though it's less than probably 10 or 11% influence on the ball. So those things, so the key is it's not your grip, it's not What your feet are like—it's not any of that. It's about can I get you in an environment where you can learn in a short time frame as possible to aim well and return the face to square. So a lot of that's about how you train. People talk a lot about, well, I need a face balanced putter because my ball does this. I should your putter should your grip should be in the life. I'm like the golf ball doesn't know what gives you the most measure of control. What gives you the best sense of comfort? You know, so. Let's get working back to the other question of like should it open stance or close stance. You know, so it's, it's uh I just work on the skills set and then once they learn how to start the ball online, and I want to add one comment on that because there's a trick. Then I'll work on I I need to make sure I can feel my line into the hole or see my line in the hole. That's different. I need to be able to control the pace within maybe six inches of what I'm intending, or the ball the ball's not gonna go in. And those that's just there's simple fundamentals that make that easier to do, but at the end of the day, it's it's about quality reps. With regards to creating an environment where you can learn to aim well and, and return the face to square, one common mistake people make is they get a device that does it for them. So imagine setting your putter on a railing and just go back it through and it teaches you this path. When it, it's called a guided device. When, when there's a guided device, and I'm not talking golf, I'm talking learning the people that study how the brain works and learning, they would say that's the single most ineffective way to learn anything. So when you have to do it yourself, the difficulty goes way up and therefore the learning goes way up. And so instead of resting it on a rail and just scraping it back and forth, if I created a an archway, a channel, where if I was off, I clanked the channel, let's imagine there's a gentle arch, that would be more effective. If I had a device that aimed it for me, that's ineffective compared to having something nearby that I could use as a reference, but learn to aim it myself. It's harder work. So when you train, you're always trying to figure out effective ways to train. And I think it's very common, even on the tours to have a mirror with a line on there. It shows you where you're going. And I just, that's not my preference. I just think that's ineffective compared to other, other ways. I've, not
1: a great putter right now. I'm working on it, especially not having played a lot in recently and having spent a lot of those years off. But one of the things that I noticed that is different between my junior golf slash college golf self and now is back in those times, I did a lot more of what you're talking about. I did a lot more of like random mirror drills. I did a lot more of guided putting practice. And I honestly had a myriad of drills that I would use and I'd be trying maybe a new drill every week a new game every week and not as much games more drills and as times progress really I've kind of narrowed down my practice into a few different types of drills and that's close putts short putts so cleaning up six feet and in and also a lot of distance work and then I'll do some fundamental checks every now and then tell us about how you would recommend structuring your someone's putting practice again recognizing that players cannot be
0: put in molds or anything like that and each player's needs might vary so i do my stru- structural practice uh fundamental checks every single day no exception can't skip is if you're a good coach and it's effective you could probably do it in two minutes or less so if it's a half an hour you're not going to be in the mood or you're not going to have time so that's no good so we're going to create a setup check uh, aim check ability to start the ball, on line check, and it's your warm-up. It takes two minutes. You do it every day. All right. Now, there are other things that you could do, for example, to test whether you're reading the green correctly or start hitting your start line. So, let me just give you an example. So, let's say you read a putt. You got a five-footer. And you say, I'm going to start at right edge, and it's going to curl in the hole and go in at 515. So, you got a picture in your head? All right. What if you put a dime two feet in front of your ball in line with right edge, okay? And if you do the math, if you can hit a dime that's two feet in front of your ball, your ball's on line to go in from 10 feet or less, it's going to go in the hole, okay? As long as there's not footprints or some other thing. Give me a percentage. you got 10 players looking at that dime that's right edge. Give me a percentage when they get over the ball, and they look through the dime at the right edge where the dime looks like it's in the right place. Out of 10 players, what do you think? 11%?
1: Well, yeah, I, guess I the, say,
0: no, 10. hardly anybody. Anybody... Most people get in there and they go, oh my God, that dime doesn't look right edge. that looks a cup outside right or it looks left center. I mean, your vision and how you picture influence everything. And then you got these people in a mirror working on their stroke and then they put the putter down and they they can't even get even remotely a picture of what the truth is. So it's like, what's all that mirror work doing for you when the dime looks like it's three balls to the right of the hole? So if you're going to say, what's the most important thing? I'm going to say your confidence, your belief. What's the second most important? I'm going to say it's your vision. It's your ability to see the truth. So we got to do things after your two minutes is over, Daniel, we would do things where you train your visual acuity of, of your start line and your entry line into the hole that's truthful. And if you do it often enough, at some point, it'll change your perception. It'll change how you see. And that, that's a big problem. Your stroke might be beautiful, but you don't put any good because you not see very well. You know what I'm saying? And it's not like, no, I see just fine. No, no, you don't really perceive what straight is or what the curve is, even though you just predicted it. And so that, that's a big that's a big problem in putting. So I spent a lot of time uh, explaining the first part and let's say, hey, let's knock off the technique and let's get dealt with it as quickly as we can. And now let's work on this other stuff, uh, how you see... You know, your distance, your ability to control the distance the ability to predict the distance or sense it same yeah you, know, you get me right absolutely I think besides putting and
1: talk going through the fundamentals that we've talked about today I think that there's really one more area that I I'd was like gonna to I was go gonna, ahead
2: to but then and ask one more question sorry if a, if a player came to you with the yips what would be your process to
0: remedy this that's a really good question because I get like Four people a day that come that way, all right? I just got a phone call today. Hey, I I got both the putting and the chipping yips. When can I come? If they have a a real yip, there's not a damn thing you can do because it's neurological. It's called a neurofocal dystonia, and there are broken pathways in their brain that under stress, they literally, it will cause a a tremor or whatever. But I would say that of people and golfers that say they have the yips I would say 10% of the people would have a true yip, and if that's the case, I would turn you around left-handed and we'd start over, okay? You just can't do anything close to the same movement pattern and change it. It's got to be like fresh start, something completely different. Uh, 90% of the time, people do not have the yips. They have anxiety, and they have performance anxiety and poor mechanics. So this is where I would first improve the physics, Make them understand and commit to those foundational things. And they say, okay, now the heavy lifting is being, we got to work on your brain. we got to learn how to deal with stress. I'm going to teach you how to breathe. I'm going to teach you how to visualize. And we're going to do these five affirmations every day. We're going to define your process and focus on your process and make it more important than the result. You're going to learn to recognize when you get a thought in your head. So the average male, which is luckily way less than the average female, you get like fifteen to 25,000 thoughts a day. They're coming in. There's not a damn thing you can do about it. When is that thought helpful and when is it de- unhelpful or destructive? Well, the unhelpful ones typically are emotional and the the factual ones are, are good. So you got to learn to understand like, was this thought derived from emotion or was it derived, what's facts? So for example, this, you got your three footer, you're hoping the guy gives it to you. He doesn't. Now you're going, oh God, I need to make this putt, or it's going to be embarrassing, or it's going to, or I'm going to shoot 80, or whatever the message you're giving yourself. Is that a fact? No, th- that's emotion. What are the facts? Okay, it's a three-footer, it's slightly uphill, it's left center. How about let's go commit make a committed stroke? You know, that's a completely different message. You hold yourself into the moment and you've you have something under your control, like the commitment level, versus like, I need to make this putt. You know, or, or I hope I don't embarrass myself. That those are you know, recognize when that story's been told, and to the best of your ability, you gotta fight it. It's just not easy. And by the way, it's not just amateurs that get this. The tour players get them all the time. I can't tell you how many random bad thoughts pros get when it when it matters, but they're just better at kind of putting them aside and refocusing their energy on something they can positively do. It's a skill set that's learned, but when you practice every day and you're competing every week it's certainly much easier to get good at this skill set than when you have one competitive round every six weeks and you gotta take three weeks off because you've got kids got vacation and you got work and you know, it's like a it's not a fair fight for an amateur player because they they just don't get the reps they need but you still do your best to explain it and there's things they can do at home where they can't get to the course things like that Collins I, I hope that answers your question that's that's very helpful. I think Cooper
1: might be switching to left-handed potentially. Uh, he just texted me, so we'll we'll see how that goes. From I'm you I'm could somewhat
0: or You could go, you know, whatever.
1: He's he's tried a good number of them, but as he practices more, I think I, we'll got claw this time. There you that's go. That's
0: what that's what I like to hear. So my 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 advice would be: define your foundational pieces. Create a simple way to make sure you're doing it every single time hopefully one minute, two minutes, three minutes. And then after that, you got to take it off your list. You can't chase outcomes. You just have to try and have an athletic spirit and commit to every stroke and not, not give an outcome permission to make you feel a certain way. Because when you miss a three-footer, it's the emotional response to it that creates ul- ultimately the, uh, the 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 anxiety. It's like, oh, I'm not giving any result permission to make me feel one way or the other. You know, I'm fine. And and there's just got to be a message that, plays in your head.
2: Daniel's going to come up and caddy for me in the USAM qualifier in two weeks, so I'm
1: definitely going to come back and rewatch this before then. Thank you. One one last thing before we get to, I know we're running close to time. I know you got plenty of other things to do today, and we always appreciate you taking your time. Before we get to our last set of questions, uh, there's one more area I wanted to quickly dive into with you, which is practicing. We've talked overarchingly about specific topics, putting and short game, but one thing that comes with practice is practice time. And uh whether you're pro or amateur, you have a limited amount of time in a day. You have practice time you need to allocate. And it sounds like one of the things that you're big on is efficiency in practice. Like a two minute setup to check fundamentals. That is very good. And I've seen people and had myself fundamental checks that Lasted much too long for that and were really hard to do. Tell us a little bit about your fundamentals as far as practice time and what you should be doing in practice in order to get the most
0: out of it. All right, it doesn't matter if it's bunker, putting, full swing, or whatever. And you can, if you want to dive deep, just get my first book. It's called uh, Your Short Game Solution, it's a wedge game book. And I go into detail. But the reality is you do your fundamental checks with feedback first. That's your warm-up. That's called blocked practice, one after the other, learning environment. Now you're off technique and you're trying to develop shot-making skill, the skills of focus, rhythm, confidence, judgment. And that's done in random and variable. So whether it's doing a lap around the green chipping or going up-slope, slope ball buried, ball above, short shot, long shot in the bunker, It's completely random and you're working on your judgment and your focus skills. And then lastly, you got to try and win your way off the putting green or win your way out of the bunker or win your way off chipping by competing and creating some stress and learning to push the distraction aside, the the harmful emotional thoughts aside and focus on the task at hand. So that's the same formula regardless of what you do. And I would say your blocked practice should take about 10% of your total time, which is not very much, Right. So most people either do no block practice, their fundamentals are poor, or they over block practice, and they never really get to the other more important parts. So that's 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 your answer right there. But you got to get value from the time you invest, whether it's fifteen minutes or a half an hour or an hour. Like if you're a tour player, you might be doing it for an hour, but you know what? I practice about five minutes a day. So let's got to figure out how to get some value from that. Absolutely. Well, we appreciate you taking the
1: time to join us. The last question we ask, every guest is the same. And for you, it's going to be a two parter. So the first part is, if you could go back to yourself as a junior golfer and tell yourself just one thing, what would that one thing be? And since you work with other golfers, if you could tell a junior golfer just one thing, what would that one thing be?
0: I would say, remember why you love or fell in love with the game? Because people change those reasons over time. It becomes more about points and ego than it does about Enjoying the challenge or being outside or the people or whatever. Good reasons and bad reasons. Why? The other thing I would say is trying to just have some fun is very close to about trying the right amount. And most players when they start to compete, they overtry. And overtrying ruins performance. Perfect. Well, we appreciate it.
1: If people are interested in working with you, they're interested in finding you on social media, they're interested in buying your book,
0: where can they do all those things? You, get the, you can get the books on Amazon. Your short game solution, your putting solution, and cool under pressure are the three I've written. If they want to contact me. then go to my website, jsegolfacademy.com, and there's a place where they can send me an email. And social media wise, it's just my name at either Twitter or Instagram, just James Seekman altogether. They can find me there. I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm an old guy, so I don't do a ton of social media stuff. I suck at it. You know, if I want something really good, I'll get my kids to do it for me. So probably not a great follow on twitter you know but uh yeah, you can get me there be
1: sure to give james a follow and then if you're listening to us on spotify or apple Podcasts, please subscribe leave us a rating and if you're listening on youtube please like subscribe this helps us get our message out to more people and if you're trying to find us on social media you can find us on instagram at the tournament code and on twitter at tournament code as always we appreciate you taking the time to join us look forward to diving in deeper to what it takes to play elite tournament Call.